Hi, friends, and welcome to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast, where we discuss Bible prophecy from a pre-tribulational, premillennial, expositional, and rapture-ready point of view. This is Joel Dover. I'm the former professor of eschatology and dean of biblical studies at Calvary Chapel University, a local pastor for more than two decades, and a student of God's Word. Grab your Bibles and let's dig deep. This is the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. Well, hi, friends, and welcome back to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. This is your host, Pastor Joel Dover. So glad to have you with us on the program today and excited about what the Lord will say to us as we get into Daniel chapter 2. I'd like to invite you to go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word, again, Daniel chapter 2. And as you are turning... Uh, I'd like to just encourage you to go ahead and like, subscribe to the podcast, and maybe share it, or if you at least will hit the notifications icon, you can be updated when new material comes about. I think that uh, there's a wonderful opportunity here for you to uh, bring in people who would appreciate this, maybe a pastor, a small group leader, Sunday school teacher, or someone who just enjoys this kind of methodical, expositional study of God's Word. And so again, today we're in Daniel chapter 2, and as we're beginning, I want us to realize that the, the entirety of the book of Daniel really from chapter two forward. Now, we did introductions last time. We talked about Daniel uh, coming into um, Babylon and how he arrived there, how he became a part of the king's court. But really from chapter two all the way through chapter 12, the end of the book, Daniel breaks down nicely into two halves. In chapters one through six, we see Daniel began to interpret the revelations and dreams and visions that God gave to a series of kings And really, it records kind of chronologically those uh, revelations that the Lord gave to kings over a period of 59 years. Now, the second part of the book, beginning in chapter 7, going all the way through verse 12, the chronology resets. And what we actually see there is that the Lord gives Daniel direct visions, direct revelations, direct dreams. And he'll be teaching us, of course, from chapter 7 on about the things that the Lord shared with him directly. So uh, again, thinking about it this way, the first half of the book is Daniel's interpretation of the visions and dreams of the kings whom he served in Babylon, and then later, of course, the uh, Mede and Persian kings. And as we think about the second half of the book, the second half of the book very nicely breaks down into revealing a chronological order of the visions that God gave directly uh, to Daniel, and he shares those with us. Now, in chapter 3 and chapter 6, there are some important details in Daniel's life that really aren't prophetic, they're more parenthetical. We see, for example, the fiery furnace event in chapter 3, and then in chapter 6, the lion's den event, which just reminds us that As we're reading this and as God is using Daniel and his uh, companions in a tremendous and mighty way, uh, that there were some challenges along the way. Well, let's jump in. Let's see what the Lord has for us as we begin in chapter 2. I would encourage you if you're listening, uh, maybe, you know, not if you're driving, but if you're at home listening or sitting at your desk, perhaps uh, you might grab a pen and paper and begin to take some notes or come back to this uh, later uh, where you can dig a little deeper with us as we go verse by verse. Well, let's look at verse 1. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. The Bible gives us a timestamp here. The scripture says it's the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. This means that Daniel was still in the Babylonian reculturalization program when this vision came to the king. And the Bible very clearly in verse 1 says that Nebuchadnezzar had a plurality of dreams. If you look very closely there, the Bible says 
Uh, he had dreams, that's plural, more than one. Perhaps it was a reoccurring dream, we don't know. It seems that that might be the case, but Nebuchadnezzar has a series of what I believe at least are likely reoccurring dreams. Now, in those days, in the days of the Bible, the belief was that the kings were in a very special position before the gods, and the belief was there in Babylon that the gods communicated to the kings through dreams. In chapter 3, we're going to find Nebuchadnezzar demanding worship and acting as though he is a god to be worshipped, but they certainly believed, at least at this point as well in chapter 2, that uh, the gods would communicate with them through their visions and dreams. But here's the problem. Unless there was someone who was able to interpret the dream, Nebuchadnezzar and, of course, all the kings had no idea of knowing what the gods were actually trying to say to them, whether they were blessings or curses, whether they spoke of fortune or disaster. Now, first one is very clear that when Nebuchadnezzar began to have these dreams, that they were troublesome dreams. The Bible again says his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. And so whatever it was that was in these dreams, and of course, we're going to see the contents of that as we uh, unfold this chapter, but whatever it was initially, it shocked the king to his core. He knew that this was no ordinary dream. There's something significant about it. He believed there was a divine message in it. And what he saw impacted him so greatly that his spirit, the Bible says his spirit was troubled. He was greatly disturbed by it and he began to lose sleep over it. I wonder if you've ever had a sleepless night. I wonder if you've ever had a dream that so rattled you that you woke up in the middle of the night and couldn't get back to sleep. Imagine having that kind of experience night after night after night. Well, you might say that Nebuchadnezzar began to obsess over it. He knew that it was significant, but he didn't know what the dream meant. And so in verse 2 through 4, Nebuchadnezzar calls for his magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and for uh, those of wisdom among the Chaldeans. Let's read. The Bible says, Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and he will give the interpretation. All right, so now the king calls all of these from the pagan court. Uh, He mentions magicians, which if we dig deeper into the original languages of the Bible here, in this context, a a magician is a practitioner of occult divination what we might call an occult priest. These men would have been very similar to those magicians that Moses encountered in Egypt. And we know that sometimes, of course, reading the scripture, these men would have been imbued with occultic powers that were given to them through demonic ability. He also called for the astrologers. The Hebrew word here denotes a practitioner of necromancy. In other words, these are these are people who were adept at communicating with the dead, someone who conjures up the dead, seeking some kind of interpretation or message from beyond. He also called for the sorcerers, which again, in the uh, Hebrew, it's practitioners of witchcraft. These guys uh, would have seen unknown or sought unknown knowledge through incantations and readings in various forms. And then he calls for the Chaldeans. And certainly this is a reference to the Chaldean astrologers, who were known to be skilled in astrology and by the time of Nebuchadnezzar had become their own uh, order of astrologers. The Chaldeans, of course, had a particular interest in the stars. They are uh, credited in history with inventing the science of astronomy. They were among the first to keep meticulous records of star movements, patterns in the sky, these kind of things. 
And it's interesting, the Chaldeans were so good at astrology, they postulated that a year is specifically 365 days, 6 hours, 15 minutes, and 41 seconds. And modern technology has checked them to within 30 minutes of that ancient calculation. It's just amazing. So uh, they were very adept at reading the stars in astrology. But the Chaldeans just as interested in magic as they were science. So not only astronomy, but also astrology. And they believed that by understanding the patterns of the stars, they could discern messages from the spirit world. Now, this is interesting. When Nebuchadnezzar calls them, he gives the command that they would all be called together, and they want, they want these men to tell the king what his dream was. He discloses that he's had a dream. The Bible says he's anxious to know the meaning of it. The Chaldeans responded, so tell us the dream will give us the interpretation, okay? But that's not how this was to go down, all right? In verse 5 through 11, a cat and mouse game ensues between Nebuchadnezzar and uh, the Chaldean magicians. Let's read and then affirm decision in verse 5. The scripture says, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. Here it is. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive gifts from me, uh, rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Now listen to verse 7. Here's the cat and mouse. 7, they answered again and said, Let the king tell his servant the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such thing of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Well, again, here's what's happening, friends. The king has made a firm decision, and the decision is, all of you astrologers, magicians, all of you, you must tell me the dream and the interpretation. So Nebuchadnezzar knows what his dream was, but he wants to make sure that the interpretation is right. And so he says, you guys, tell, don't just give me the interpretation. You've got to tell me what the dream was that I had. And if not, he says, I'll cut you into pieces. Uh, you'll be dismembered and I'll burn your houses down into an ash heap. However, he says, if you can tell me the dream and the interpretation, gifts, rewards, honor are going to follow you. Now, they, of course, they plead with the king. No one's ever asked this kind of things before. Uh, no one has ever asked any Chaldean or any ma magician to do this. No one knows uh, what your dream is except the gods who gave it. Give us the dream. We'll give you the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar says no. He thinks they're stalling. He says you guys are just trying to uh, buy time, let the moment pass. But he is firm in this decision that not only is he seeking the interpretation of the dream, but he wants them to disclose the dream itself. Now, in verse 9, there's some insight into Nebuchadnezzar's thought process. He was so troubled again by this dream that he wanted to make sure that its interpretation was true and right. And he says, the only way that I can know that you guys have the authority to give the right interpretation is if you also have supernatural insight to tell me what the dream was. Otherwise, he thinks, well, you could be telling lies. 
You could make up the interpretation or you could conspire together to just say what you think I want to hear to make you happy, uh, to make me happy. Clearly, Nebuchadnezzar did not trust his counselors. In verse 10 to 13, again, the Chaldeans respond, there's no man on earth who can do this. It's an unreasonable request. No one's ever asked this of a magician like us. And he says, they say to the king, the only one who could reveal this would be the gods themselves. And I want to say that's exactly right. Enter, listen, enter the opportunity for Daniel to demonstrate who God really is. Well, the king is furious. His anger burns uh, against them, the Bible says. He becomes very angry. And we're going to see here the command that they would be destroyed. Look at verse 12. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Uh Uh-oh, here's the problem. Daniel and his companions were included in the decree. They were included in the company. And so now there's a threat to their lives because the king is angry with his pagan astrologers and magicians. That brings us to verse 14, 15, and 16. And Daniel is found, and he finds a way, discovers a way to get more time. So look at the Bible again. The Bible says, Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, who the Bible says here is the captain of the king's guard, who'd gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. So Daniel, you know, he wants to know from the uh, person who's been assigned to take the lives of the magicians, why is it so, why is this origin? Why is the king, why is the king interested in this? Now it's interesting, Arioch, who is in charge of this, his name literally means the chief butcher. And that's exactly what he was sent out to do, to butcher all of those who were the magicians, astrologers of uh, uh, Babylon, including Daniel and his friends. And so why is the decree so urgent? And Arioch tells him about the things that have happened. He tells them about the conversation that Daniel didn't know about the conversation. He didn't know about the king's dream. He didn't know about the failure of the uh, astrologers and Chaldeans to interpret the dream. Uh, And so Daniel is now getting an education. Daniel, of course, is still in the reculturalization program. He's a youth. And so at this point, he has not yet been presented to the king. And so understand that what we're reading here in chapter 2 as God begins to show us, you know, in chronology, how the uh, the Lord used Daniel to interpret the visions of the king, this takes place chronologically prior to what we read at the end of uh, chapter one, where Daniel and his friends were presented at the completion of the program. So uh, when Nebuchadnezzar saw Daniel on interview day, these events of chapter two chronologically had already taken place. Verse 16, Daniel goes in, he asked the king for time that he might seek the Lord Almighty and then give Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation. That brings us to verse 17. The Bible says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Apparently, they're roommates, okay? And verse 18 says that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God, my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. So notice that Daniel goes alone to seek the king, but when he's granted permission to pray about this thing, he goes and he seeks counsel from his friends, and they all begin to pray together. A prayer meeting breaks out. They know that it's a very serious situation. Their lives are on the line. If God doesn't come through, they're through. They know that there's a great potential that they might perish along with the wise men of Babylon. So they begin to pray. And the result of that is that the Lord God, verse 19, reveals the secret to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel actually, you know, if you think about this, Daniel dreams Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He receives the revelation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in a night vision. He now knows what the king has seen. And the result, of course, in the following verses is praise and glory unto God for who he is and thanksgiving for what he's done. Verse 24, in verse 24 and following, we find Daniel's audience with the king. Let's read together. Again, we're in Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 24. The Bible says, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men and astrologers and magicians and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But listen, this is so good, friends. Verse 28, But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, Thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what he what would come to pass after this, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. These are future things. Verse 30, But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who made known the interpretation of the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. 31, You, O king, were watching, and behold a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 36. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks into pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. 
Whereas you saw the feet of toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Well, that's a great deal of scripture, and I thank you for your patience in just listening to the reading of God's word. Let's work through it quickly. In verse 24 to 30, here's Daniel's approach. We find that Daniel approaches Arioch. He requests a conversation with the king. Arioch brings Daniel quickly with a sense of urgency. I found a man from Judah who can make known the, interpre- the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar says, you got to do both. Can you tell me the dream and its interpretation? And then Daniel responds with what I think are the most shout-worthy verses in the Bible. In verse 26 and 27, he says, none of the wise men of Babylon can declare this secret to the king. But listen, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has made known uh, what Nebuchadnezzar has dreamed and what Nebuchadnezzar will be in the latter days. Again, friends, this is shout-worthy. It's wonderful. Daniel is witnessing of the reality of the one true living God. And he begins to tell us that the dream is future-oriented, and it speaks of latter days. Latter days, so important. That's a phrase that we began to see now in Daniel that points us all the way to the end. Latter days. These are the things that will be in the latter days, and they are certainly of the Lord. Now, verse 30, Daniel makes it clear. I'm no more wise than anyone else. He points to the revelation of God Almighty. He gives God glory. He doesn't take God's glory onto himself, but he says, look, God's shown us this, that we might be spared and that the king might have peace. Verse 31 to 35, here's the dream. Daniel begins to tell him, you saw, you saw a great and awesome image that stood before you. It was awesome. Its splendor was excellent. Its head was made of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet mixed with iron and clay. So this image was obviously the image of a man and at different materials. And then as you saw the image, Daniel says, you saw a stone cut out without hands, and the stone broke the image on its feet and broke them into pieces. Then all the materials were crushed together and became like chaff, carried off into the wind. No trace of them was found. And meanwhile, the stone that struck them became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. Now, after sharing the dream itself, Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation. He says here, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And then after you will come other kingdoms. There'll be an inferior kingdom of silver that comes second. Then there'll be a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And then a fourth kingdom, verse 40 to 43, strong as iron that will crush and destroy the previous three. I mean, this one, this fourth kingdom so strong, it will destroy all of the preceding kingdoms. And then on the, on, on the feet of clay and iron, this is a prophecy about the fate of that fourth kingdom. 
Uh, It's a prophecy about a divided kingdom. It would have the strength of iron in it, but it would be partly strong and partly weak. They would mingle with the seed of men, but not adhere to them like iron does not mix with clay. And so the fate of that fourth kingdom is uh, foretold for us here in biblical prophecy. In the days of these kings, Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That is a kingdom that will not be left to other people. It will break and consume all these kingdoms and will stand forever. That's eternally, friends. It is an eternal kingdom. The stone, of course, is representative of the eternal king and the eternal kingdom that will come in the days of these kings. Now, I want us to come to a greater understanding, and the advantage that we have as students of God's word are enormous. First of all, as you and I read and interpret chapter 2, we have the rest of the book of Daniel, and as we get deeper into Daniel, specifically in Daniel chapter 8, we're going to see Daniel specifically name the kings uh, of the Medo-Persians and the Greeks Uh, so that we understand that there is a progression of subsequent historical kingdoms that are being referenced here as well in chapter 2. So the Bible does specifically name all but the kingdom of iron and clay uh, by name. Secondly, we have the advantage of the historical record. uh, Daniel wrote from the other side of these events before they happen. You and I are reading from this side of the historical kingdoms, so we can look back at the historical progression of the nations. We know historically, of course, that there were kingdoms that followed Babylon, and we have a greater understanding of this. Finally, you and I, friends, have the advantage of knowing the meaning of the stone. That is the inauguration of the Messianic age. Jesus has come. His kingdom is being established spiritually. It will be established literally, and his eternal rule will commence over every kingdom on the earth when he returns at the second coming. So let's identify what we can from the vision of chapter 2, and then we'll begin to build on our knowledge base as we continue through Daniel. Here's what we know. We know that Babylon is the kingdom of gold. Verse 38 makes that clear. And as we see the vision continue, each material is connected in sequence to the one before and to the one after. These are world kingdoms from Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the kingdom age. We also note that the materials degrade in value from top to bottom, gold at the beginning, but iron and clay mix at the feet. And Nebuchadnezzar here, of course, is called the king of kings, which speaks about the greatness of his empire and the wonder of his authority. But you'll notice, friends, that when Babylon is conquered by the Medo-Persians, the silver chest, that it's divided in authority and devalued in greatness as demonstrated by the downgrade to silver and the power struggle of both arms in the kingdoms, that is, the Medes and the Persians, the second kingdom. The third kingdom, Alexander's kingdom, is the Greco-Mesopotamian kingdom, weaker still in authority as it shifts from from the uh, emperorship to a republic, and of course led by Alexander the Great. It was said of Alexander that he conquered the world but could not conquer himself, and of course we know that historically Alexander, Alexander the Great died in a drunken feast, and when he passed away his kingdom was divided among his four generals. This is the kingdom of bronze, belly, and thighs. Finally, we note, friends, that the Roman Empire was the kingdom of iron and clay. Iron, of course, is the least valuable of all of these materials, but it's also the hardest. It's perfect for crushing, and yet its foundation, the feet, are rather weak, iron mixed with clay. It's interesting, when you look at the Roman Empire, in the beginning, the empire was imperialistic, but later it became a republic. The Pax Romana that characterized the imperialist period disappeared when that political shift took place, and without an emperor holding it together, 
The foundations of Rome crumbled and the empire split into two legs, east, which was the Byzantine Empire, and west, which was the Roman Empire. And for reasons that are debated by good historians everywhere and which are, you know, agreeable and disagreeable on both sides of the equation, both the eastern and western legs of the old Roman Empire began to lose traction and became weakened so that eventually both legs of the empire just broke off into a number of independent territories that now comprise what we call Europe and parts of the ancient Near East and parts of Northern Africa. So friends, prophetically speaking, it's important for you and I to note that the Roman Empire was never conquered. It just dissolved into a number of smaller countries, which I believe is represented here by the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. We'll see this again in chapter 7 when we begin to study Daniel's vision of the ten horns. Spiritually speaking, this means that the Roman Empire, friends, it practically still exists today. The Roman Empire was broken apart, but it wasn't conquered. Now the Roman Empire exists intermingling with the nations, intermingling with men, but not adhering to one another. It's broken apart, but it doesn't adhere to itself. It's dispersed among the nations as independent countries, some that are powerful, some that are weak. And what's interesting about this is that Daniel's prophecy suggests that in the last days, this is prior to the coming of the Lord, that there will be a reunification of the old Roman Empire to coincide with what I believe is the beginning of the tribulation period. For this reason, there are many Christians who keep a close watch on Europe and on the Middle East, who have a great interest in following the conglomerations, national pacts, power interests of the people who live in those nations, the rise and fall of leaders, uh, and of course, global conflicts in those particular regions. And so we are introduced to these four particular kingdoms. We know historically they have existed and believe as we study according to a pre-tribulational, premillennial point of view, understanding uh, the book of Daniel in particular through this context that in days to come, the old Roman order will reconglomerate itself and will rise again. Look at verse 46 to 49, and this will close us out for the day. The Bible says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. I want to point out just two very quick things here. I want to point out that Daniel's purpose in glorifying God and pointing Nebuchadnezzar to God and to God's abilities is fulfilled here. And now... In these verses, we see Nebuchadnezzar recognizing the supremacy of Jehovah God and giving him glory. And I want to point out to you as well that young Daniel uh, is um, promoted here, that the king takes note of him and promotes him so that now Daniel moves from just being a part of the reculturalization program, a young Hebrew boy brought into Babylon uh, to serve in the king's court. Now he moves into the place of sitting in the king's gate and in being in charge of the king's affairs. God greatly glorifies him. God raises him up. There's a, there's, a, there's a correlation here, friends, between the humility of Daniel and his desire to give glory to God and God's exaltation of Daniel to the position that he receives here in Babylon. And Daniel, of course, remembers his friends. He and his Hebrew friends now are sitting in a wonderful place of authority 
in Babylon. Well, friends, that's all for today. I want to thank you for being so intent to listen. Again, please do like and share the podcast and go ahead if you haven't uh, hit the subscription uh, and the notification tab so that you'll be updated as soon as we drop new episodes, typically on Wednesdays of each week. Thank you again for listening. I pray the Lord's richest blessings on you. Have a wonderful week. God bless you, and we'll see you next time.